Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. We designed these acoustic curtains that are almost like big roller shades that can kind of go up and down in the room to provide absorption at certain levels, but then maintain some reverberation at other levels. And the room can be specifically tuned, you know, to the event. So whether that's a social event, a performance, sound art, it can kind of work for all of those. So that's just one example of like taking a found space and then pulling out of it, like what the good qualities are for this new program. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. The voice you heard in our intro is my guest, Callie Verkamp principal at Wheeler Kearns Architects in Chicago. Callie joined Wheeler Kearns in 2013 and became a principal in 2023. She loves designing both new and renovated spaces that improve the lives of the people that use them. Callie particularly enjoys the collaborative nature of design and enjoys working towards a common goal with every project team in which she is involved. The project we are going to talk about today is The Momentary, a -a one-of-a-kind contemporary arts experience creatively repurposed from a 70-year-old decommissioned craft foods plant. Yes, you heard that right. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.rcat.com slash podcast. Located in downtown Bentonville, Arkansas, The Momentary, a satellite of Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, is the perfect hangout. From exploring the galleries and outdoor artworks, to catching a performance, to enjoying a savory bite or refreshing drink, there's something for everyone to discover. Today, 
the momentary makes cutting-edge contemporary art a part of daily living, but it was quite a journey to get to this point. The client is Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, which is in Bentonville, Arkansas. They had opened in 2011, and I was still living in Northwest Arkansas at that time. I was still in school. So I was there. I went to the museum, and I saw that it was having a really great impact on the region, which, which you know, maybe not surprisingly, didn't really have access to world-quality art before that museum was opened. So when we got the RFQ, I thought, wow, this is amazing. Like they're expanding. I would love to be a part of it. I had only been at my office for two years at this point, but because I had an Arkansas connection, I'm from there, I was able to kind of step in and take a leadership role in putting our response together. And I could not believe it when we were shortlisted and then awarded the project. It was like just an amazing opportunity. The building itself was a defunct craft cheese plant that had opened in 1947. And then between the time that it opened and the time that we were awarded the project, they had added on to it several times, which kind of resulted in this conglomeration of buildings from different decades with different structural systems, different cladding materials, different floor levels, just really like an organic almost type of growth that resulted in this, like what you described as a super unique and one of a kind building. It grew from 20,000 square feet when it opened to almost 60,000 square feet when we started. So they had shut the building down in 2013. All the equipment had been removed. And when we visited, I remember it was just like super dark, really damp, lots of noises coming from who knows where. We were walking around with flashlights. It was a little scary. And, you know, we at Wheeler Currency, we always say we like to work with clients who see opportunities that other people might overlook. And I have to give it to Crystal Bridges that they saw the opportunity to make this building into a contemporary art space because it, it was not giving that vibe off when, you know, when we first visited. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it at all. <laughs> and the, they expressed to us that their goal for the the building was they wanted an art space that was the opposite of a traditional art museum in every way. So starting with this building kind of made sense and started us on the right track for that. It was meant to extend the mission of Crystal Bridges Museum by showing how contemporary art intersects with daily life. And it was meant to kind of lower the threshold of entry, meaning to invite people in who might otherwise feel a little timid to visit an art museum. In preparing for this adaptive reuse project, the team uncovered challenging conditions, but some discoveries were a bit more unexpected than others. So we were able to get a full laser scan of the building before we started work, which was super helpful because there was no really concealed spaces. Since it was a factory, everything was just running out in the open. All the structure was visible. So that gave us a pretty good idea of everything that was inside. I would say the biggest unforeseen came with stuff that was below the ground. When you start trying to excavate a pit for a movable floor, for example, it was a factory. It was the biggest water user in the town before it closed. There was drains everywhere, documented and undocumented. There was apparently a well 
on the site, there was a whole house underground that we didn't even know, like the foundations in the basement were just all left there on one corner. So definitely the underground stuff was the biggest surprises. That's almost an archaeological dig. (laughs) It was, yeah. Wheeler Kearns Architects was presented with the challenge of transforming a patchwork of concrete and masonry buildings into a flowing arts experience. Repurposing industrial or former industrial buildings into community spaces is not a new idea necessarily. It's something that's caught on, you know, across the globe. But I I am proud, and I think one of the more unique things about this project is because this particular type of building is not one that you normally see repurposed. It's very economically built. One of our consultants described it as a tent for pipes when we first started. (laughs) It's almost more of a shed than a building. And it's something that you do see a lot in middle America. And it doesn't necessarily have a strong identity or super impressive, you know, interior spaces that you see in a lot of these repurposed industrial buildings. But there was still some value in this. It was very authentic to the place and so worth keeping and repurposing. And so the first challenge for us was really a conceptual one, coming up with a concept that could be applied to this whole building that was made up of so many different buildings to result in a fluid experience. And that was the hardest initial challenge. We also needed to consider how to make it safe for people and how to make it accessible, how to make it open more to the exterior. It was very opaque. You know, we had no windows. They're protecting the cheese making process from natural light. Now we want people to want to come in here. Like, how do we do that? Those were our first thoughts before we started to get into the more technical challenges. Like, how do we deal with five different structural systems built at different times? You know, how do we increase the structural capacity for different locations for really heavy art or lots of people? How do we deal with all of these pipes that are left? How are we communicating to the contractor exactly which pipe to keep and which pipe to remove? So recognizing that at each point in the building's history, they added on to it only what was needed to accommodate their new process. It was all about efficiency. Nothing extra was added. There was no master plan. It was added on to over time. So we presented this next phase as simply the next phase, the next phase in a 70-year cycle of adaptations for accommodating new functions. So we're adding on to the building in a similar fashion as they have in the past, but using contemporary materials to identify which spaces are new and which are old. And we're only adding on what is necessary for this new program and this new process. So it's just the next phase in this building's like organic evolution. And no doubt there will be more phases in the future. And we're using very contemporary materials as they did in previous editions. And so we're using glass, concrete, and steel. The additions are conceptually these superimposed elements that occur throughout the site. And they have a language that's applied to them while the existing building is to literally remain as a relic 
of the time that it was constructed. We're not touching those existing buildings. So our new additions have a very high finish, a very new presence, high contrast to the existing. They're superimposed and appear as though they might be able to move. Maybe they were just kind of set here for a minute. Maybe they're not permanent. They rest very lightly on the site and almost like distort gravity or weight. So we ended up with four of these additions, and these have a similar design language with each other while also kind of responding specifically to their purpose and context. And glass was the primary material that we used to communicate that new language. We proposed using a frit pattern to accomplish these desired effects for each glass element. The additions that were introduced included a new entry, the container gallery space, a vertical circulation core, and a tower bar. I can start with the four additions that we made. The first one is the entry, and this is a 30 by 30, 12 foot tall glass box that's situated in between two masonry buildings. It features the frit pattern that kind of is large and graphic and folds around the volume in a really eye-catching format. It opens up on two sides to invite people into the building there. That's one way that we use this new material to open up the building and allow people to get some visibility to the inside. And because the glass wraps up one side and over to the other, you end up getting a glass roof. When you look through it, you can see some of those old pipes running overhead that were running on the roof. So you're in this new space, but you're still having a view of some of the existing infrastructure. There's a structure that we call the container. It's parked at the former loading dock. It has a gradient version of this frit pattern, which is screen printed on insulated glass units. It was designed to mimic the proportions of a tractor trailer. Again, it looks like it might not be there forever. It's just kind of docked up for the moment. We have a core, a new vertical core circulation structure. It's an 80-foot tall concrete structure that's wrapped with a glass rain screen. That rain screen actually has a frit pattern on the number one surface of the glass to allow it to double as a digital art and film projection surface. Glass surfaces are identified by number starting with the exterior surface, which is surface number one. Each pane of glass has two surfaces, the first being closest to the exterior, and the second surface is closest to the interior. So there are always an even number of glass surfaces in any glazing unit. For example, a dual-pane window has four surfaces, and a triple-pane window will have six. It's important to correctly identify the glass surface number because decorative or energy-efficient coatings are applied accordingly. In addition, the coating can have a different appearance or may function better on certain surfaces. So the frit pattern, because it's on the number one surface, it allows them to, to put videos, artwork, anything they want on the outside of that. Yeah, they actually started using it an opening weekend. They had a group called Bandaloop who they perform on vertical surfaces of buildings by hanging off of the basically the infrastructure in place for window washing. And so they have a digital projection that goes along with their dancing on the side of the glass. So 
they kind of move along with the projected video. And they did that on the opening weekend of, of the momentary. It was very cool to see something that you just like offhandedly say, oh, you could project on this. And then they're actually doing it on opening weekend. I thought that was pretty cool. And then that brings you out to the tower bar, which is kind of a, a taut glass volume that has no frit pattern. It's just completely clear. And it, it sits on top of the existing tower building. As for the existing building, we did uh, completely replace the roof, dramatically improving the R value of the roof because we were maintaining all of the walls as they were. So we had to meet energy code through performance and energy modeling to show that we were essentially making up on the roof for what we were lacking on the existing walls. The tower bar and vertical circulation core emerged organically from visiting the site, but it was no easy task to incorporate them into the design. So the most technically difficult part of the project was the tower and the new tower bar. So they had this, we, we call it the tower. It was, it was like 60 feet tall, but it was in the running for the tallest building in Bentonville at the time. And of course, when we all go visit the building, there's a roof hatch, the basically the infrastructure in place for window washing. And so they have our ship team and they're like, okay, we have to get people up here. This is awesome. Let's put a bar on top. So of course, you know, every good building needs a bar on the roof. So we propose this really taut, you know, glass volume, slightly rotated from the grid to make it look like somebody had just set it up there at some point and just got left there. Super simple concept, but super difficult to achieve. And we had to figure out how to make that work, you know, with our structural engineer and also just in terms of egress. So this tower that we were setting the bar on was a steel frame with very little stiffness and not really any extra capacity, never intended to have people on top of it. The structural engineer told me it was basically like I had nine toothpicks and then I was trying to like set a bar on top of them. So we also had no way to get up there. So we knew the vertical circulation was going to have to be in addition to the building. There wasn't a good way to accommodate that on the interior. So we decided with the structural engineer to kind of use this addition that was going to be required anyway to also solve a lot of our structural issues. So the core tower is an elevator, a dumbwaiter, and two stairs that are kind of wrapped around each other. It was put adjacent to this existing steel tower. And it was designed to be a very stiff cast in place tube. And then we, we tied that with steel periodically up the side to this existing steel frame. And then we had to, or I should say, before we did all this, we had to install micro piles, not only for the foundations for the new tower, but we had to retrofit micro piles for the foundations of the nine steel columns for this, the steel tower. So that both structures were extremely stiff, not a lot of movement and not any differential movement. That was really the key because you're essentially using this concrete core as a crutch to stiffen this steel building and then allow you to put an addition on top of it. So kudos to our structural engineer who didn't hang up on me when I asked him to do this. And it turned out really well, really cool place to have a drink if you're ever in town. As part of the effort of visually tying the additions together, the owner commissioned local artists to design patterns to be featured throughout. 
The frit pattern was designed by a local Osage artist, Addie Roanhorse. Working with her was one of my favorite parts of the project, definitely one of the most fun parts. This design concept that we had originally proposed to kind of describe the intended effect of each of these additions that we made, we proposed achieving it through a fruit pattern. And we said, you know, it could be cool if we worked with an artist to design this pattern that we could help apply to these different applications. So the owner directed the search and they narrowed the search by only looking at Osage artists since that was the land that this building was situated on. And I like that because, you know, we're preserving this 70 year history of the site through this building, but the site has a history longer than 70 years. And so by kind of building in the oldest history of the site into the newest additions, I really liked the way that that story came together through the owner's direction on that search. So her design was based on finger woven belts, which are part of traditional Osage women's dress. And she described them as typically being fixed at the waist and flowing down the back. And so when the women dance, the belt sways back and forth. And she called the pattern sway and kind of recalled, you know, her history of dancing with family and seeing the sway of these belts on the women of her family. So once she joined the team, she designed the pattern. It was approved by ownership. And then we collaborated with her to figure out how to best apply it to the three distinctly different applications. And we used Illustrator and Rhino to create those files. And then the glass manufacturers used that to screen print on the different pieces of glass. I love that. And what a great way to honor the area and the space and the land that it's on. I'm sure that the locals around there, hopefully that's that's recognized somewhere in the building, a plaque or something that yeah, describes what that is. But I would think the community would be very proud of that as well. Yeah. And what's cool is we, we recently completed a parking garage on the momentary property. And we have three glass stair towers on that structure. And so the owner commissioned another artist of the Caddo tribe, which is also represented in Arkansas, to design a different pattern to be applied to those glass volumes. And so you start to have this recognition of not just the Osage people, but the Caddo people as well on different parts of the building and bringing that, you know, those contemporary artists from those tribes into the conversation. It's really cool. Inside, the team studied existing spaces to expose opportunities to reimagine the space. We started the process by kind of looking at the existing spaces and saying, you know, what would this space work well for? And the answers were sometimes, you know, not intuitive. One of the most fun spaces was uh, the fermentation hall, which is one of their performance venues in the former fermentation room. So this room was a precast concrete structure that was well insulated, at least relatively well insulated compared to the rest of the space because it used to house these fermentation tanks. So that gave us some acoustic isolation to work with. However, when we first visited that room, our acoustician clapped his hands and the echo reverberated for seven seconds. Oh, wow. So we all started calling this during the seven second room and that I still call it that sometimes nobody knows what I'm talking about. (laughs) 
but we were able to repurpose that into a performance venue and it's kind of a black box theater. The acoustics were the, the biggest challenge with the space. We added a lot of absorption, but we wanted to maintain some of the liveness of the room so that it could be used by sound artists and almost acoustically tuned to fit the specific event. So together with the acoustician and the theater designer, we designed these acoustic curtains that are almost like big roller shades that can kind of go up and down in the room to provide absorption at certain levels, but then maintain some reverberation at other levels. And the room can be specifically tuned, you know, to the event. So whether that's a social event, a performance, sound art, it can kind of work for all of those. So that's just one example of like taking a found space and then pulling out of it, like what the good qualities are for this new program. Crystal Bridges Museum wanted the momentary to contrast traditional art museums, calling for a new approach to gallery, display, and performance areas. So the interior is where we were really confronted with this idea of what is the opposite of a traditional art museum. And you kind of go back and forth, especially in visual art spaces. What level of finish are we trying to apply to these really industrial spaces on the inside? What we ended up doing in a lot of the visual arts spaces is adding gallery walls that were almost like a big canvas just hung on the on the wall. So pulled away from the floor, pulled away from the sides, pulled away from the ceiling, just this big, almost white canvas that you can still kind of see all around it. What was that existing wall material? And this is just something that's like hung on there temporarily. So that was kind of an interesting way to accommodate the presentation of some of the art. As for the lighting of it, that was another big challenge. Uh, we ended up working with Light Lab on this kind of plug and play system for the art lighting. We installed basically a grid of hang points with power at every other one throughout the space. And the Light Lab tracks had adjustable. Uh, hanging on either end so that they could basically use the grid in any way and then plug in one end to the to the power source in the ceiling. And that could kind of go up and down as needed to accommodate any different installation that they wanted. So it was it was almost like a kit of parts with this grid of infrastructure that was hidden within the ceiling and then it gave them, you know, ultimate flexibility within the galleries themselves. That was a unique way to use those products that I don't know if they had been used like that before. It sounds like flexibility in the spaces was really kind of a key core thing that you were looking at in all the different spaces. Absolutely. Is that a correct assumption that they really want to be able to kind of move and flow with whatever went like, you know, when they want to come have somebody dance on the side of the building or. <laughs> exactly. You know, I think it goes back to the idea that it's all about these overlaps between program. And, you know, we always warn our clients about too much flexibility. If something is meant to be good at everything, it ends up being good at nothing. Right. So all of the spaces have a primary function, but the flexibility comes in to allow them to be used for secondary functions also. Another example of that in the building is in the roadhouse, which is a former 
milk intake room where trucks would drive through. It was basically just four big bays where trucks could drive through and deliver milk. That's another performing arts venue. And we dug out the center of the floor and installed a movable floor system so that it can have a flat floor. It can be raked for a performance. You can have a catwalk in the middle. People sit on both sides. There's a lot of different ways you could set up the room to accommodate not just performances, but they do dinners in there. They have people kind of walk through to do different types of shows. So it's primarily a performance venue, but then it can also be used for other things too. Where a traditional art museum relies on formality, the momentary is casual and flexible. Visitors can enjoy food and drink, work on their laptop, or meet with peers simultaneously with art exhibits. To support this environment, a central commercial kitchen was added to service the various program spaces throughout the site. We have what we call a commissary kitchen on the first floor, and it was a you know full commercial kitchen. And the, the idea is that that can be used to serve all these like satellite food service locations within the space and also put on special culinary art events, which they do do, even using the roadhouse with the movable floor in a flat floor configuration kind of set up for the dinners. That was the reason also for the dumbwaiter. You know, when you're putting this bar on top of this building, you only have so much room, and putting a kitchen up there was not really the best use of space. So the dumbwaiter idea is so that commissary kitchen can serve even that, that upper level. Inside and out, the momentary purposefully overlaps social and culinary activities with art spaces to champion contemporary art's role in everyday life. These unique goals of the momentary were driven by a wide range of stakeholders. Finding consensus among a group of stakeholders can, at times, be a challenge for designs to emerge unscathed. In this case, the momentary largely stayed intact. There's a lot of changes and tweaks throughout, but I, I will say this is a project that I'm very proud that the final building is super similar to what we had presented at the end of our schematic design phase. One of my team members who originally was working on the project with me, he ended up moving away from Chicago right after schematic design, and so he left the firm, but he was able to make it down to Bentonville for the grand opening, and he was so shocked. He said, I cannot believe how close this is to the design, you know, when I left. So through everything, you know, this is like held on to. So I, I do think this is a, an example in my portfolio that I'm really proud of kind of maintaining that concept through it all. Well, and that's a, probably a testament to your team as well. I do a lot of teaching in the industry as well. And one of the things I always kind of twitch a little bit when I hear is when somebody says, I'll just deal with that later. I don't have time. <laughs> I really think those are my most detested words to hear out of somebody's mouth because I always sit and think you don't have 10 times as much time down the road to deal with it because that's what it's going to take then. Mm-hmm. And good planning, good solid planning from day one and making decisions, good decisions that you can stick with are a game changer all the way through to the end. And I, my just gut reaction is, is that's probably a real testament to your team of doing really good planning from the very beginning. And I think it's also 
like kudos to go to the ownership team too, because they had to buy in to that concept very early on and they have to protect it. You know, they're the ones ultimately making financial decisions. And at some point, some of these pieces were discussed as potential ways to save costs, but everyone really bought into the process and the concept and, you know, ultimately everything was preserved. So I think it's about building that consensus very early on, like in schematic design and then constantly reminding everyone, you know, this is our goal. This is our focus. Another reason that the concept may have been preserved could lie in a lesson that Callie learned while on this project. One thing that I would take from this the most is really about communication and the process of communication with the ownership team. And I've changed the way that I do this forever because of the feedback we got on this project. And I'll kind of explain our clients. It was a, it's a big group, right? You have this museum. There's a lot of different people at the table. There's a lot of different stakeholders. You know, there's a lot of people that come to these design meetings and then have to agree on a decision. And they shared with us that they were frustrated with the traditional design presentation format because they felt like they A, were not able to come prepared, they were put on the spot, and they were supposed to provide feedback about something that doesn't necessarily come naturally to them like it does for us. So they said, this isn't working. You know, we have these meetings, we give you our knee-jerk reactions. Then when we think about it, we actually change our minds. We get to talk to each other. You know, we might have a different decision. Then we have to tell you something different, but then you've already wasted time implementing what we said first. Like, it's just not a good process. It's stressful for everyone. Like, we don't like it. They said, architects, you know, you love to have a big reveal and say, look, this is the design. What do you think? But that just doesn't work for everybody else. So we said, look, you know, we're architects. We work up until the minute of this meeting. Like we are changing things up until five minutes ago. You just don't know that. Like, it's not like we have, we're just sitting on this for two weeks, you know, waiting to present to you, but we could give you 80% of what we're going to present in advance of the meeting. I can share what I started calling a look ahead document. And I would put as much as I could. And one week before the meeting, I circulate that to everyone who's going to be at the meeting. And it's images, but it's also text. It's this is what we're focused on. These are the answers that we need. These are the options that we're going to be presenting to you. These are the pros and cons. Like, what do you think about this? And so everyone was able to come as prepared as they might want to be. Some people probably never looked at it. Some people looked at it and came with notes and questions. I think people are afraid if you give somebody something in advance that people are going to come like armed to fight you about it. We're all on the same team. They're just coming armed with more preparation and coming with the ability to actually have a productive conversation and leave the meeting with decisions actually being made that we're going to stick. So that was a huge turning point for us in this project. And it's something that we or I do on you know, all of my projects now is just giving people an opportunity to have more of a seat at the table at these design meetings and making people feel comfortable to really provide valuable input. That is a really fantastic idea. I mean, I've heard some of the arguments about not giving documents early. You know, one of them I've heard is, <laughs> well, if I give them these early when I haven't quite fleshed all these things out, I might get held to this. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe I don't want to be held to this, but that's a fantastic idea because it's hard working with 
a large group of stakeholders. Right. You know, like anything you do in life, period. You could even get out of architecture. The more cooks you have in the kitchen, the harder it is to get the job done. But if you can find a way to really work effectively with a lot of cooks in the kitchen, you can do some amazing things. And that's a fantastic solution. All you listeners are listening to her right now. (laughs) Even with single family residential, which I do also, you know, a lot of times if you have a, a couple that's your client, say it's a husband and a wife. Maybe they have different opinions on what you're presenting and they don't want to argue in front of you. Like no one wants to, you know, hear them. So again, here, you can look at this in advance. You guys can talk about it, figure out if you agree or disagree and then come to us and you don't have to feel like you're on the spot to like disagree in front of us. So I do think it's, it's helpful in all types of projects, in my opinion. Wheeler Kearns Architects was tasked with a directive to create a -a one-of-a-kind contemporary arts experience within a 70-year-old decommissioned Kraft Foods plant. They were challenged to create a space that contrasted the formality of traditional art museums while making contemporary art a part of daily living. I would definitely hang out there, so I would say the team succeeded. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. With the number of surfaces and materials that Callie dealt with on this project, I was curious what insight she gained on improving material and product selection. You know, I think it's just thinking outside the box and starting with the intended effect of something and working backwards, how can I get there? One of the examples that comes to mind from this project is that glass scrim. You know, no one was printing print on the number one surface when we did this project. And so we knew that was the only way you were ever going to be able to project on glass was to have the print on the number one surface. But everyone said, oh, it's going to stain. It's not going to work. We like we won't do it. And we ended up, you know, bringing in a product rep from Ben Time in advance and really talking through with them you know, this is what we want. Like, if you can't do this, we cannot spec your product. Right. And they did it. It was the first time they had done it. And now they, now it's a standard product of theirs, but it gave them an opportunity to, you know, do something new and us an opportunity to get this effect that we wanted from a product that we knew was going to work well, like a system that we knew was going to work well. So I think just getting creative and, and bringing in some of the people on the production side to kind of talk through with them, like, what is the opportunities here? What's the reason why you can't do this? And can we resolve some of those issues? I wasn't anticipating that answer. Not that I was anticipating any of your answers today, but (laughs) I can't be more grateful that that was your answer because one of the challenges, I'm a spec writer, so that's my job. And I'm one spec writer for nine offices. So our staff, like any company, has to do a lot of product research on their own. And just throughout my career, in any office I've worked in, there's always this resistance to call the product rep mm-hmm. or the manufacturer and say, hey, what do we do here? And, and my argument back for that is, I call them all the time. I need to get something done. It's like, I know I'm going to do it a hundred times faster if I just call them because they know every little dirty detail about their product. Right. I can't ever know everything there is to know about all the products, neither can you or anybody else. But that rep knows everything about that one product and they can look right at it and go, nope, you don't want that. You need to do this. Or like you were able to basically innovate a whole new product for a company 
they wanted your business. They wanted to be able to do this project and they found a way to make it work. And so there's just so much you can do when you take the time to call. Yeah. And I know it takes time. There's time involved, but people look in the here and now, they don't look at how much time did I save by making this phone call. Since Callie is a younger professional, I was also curious what her perception was of the generational shifts occurring in the industry. This answer might be more hopeful than based on fact, but I think that these generations have an opportunity to reshape this industry by eliminating this like architect as martyr persona that is way too prevalent in the profession. And we all know what I'm talking about. It starts when you're in college and it's super difficult to escape it. And the message is that if you want to be successful or if you want to design certain types of buildings, then you have to eat, sleep and breathe architecture, work as many hours as you can and pretty much allow other parts of your life to suffer. And I just don't think that's true. I think millennial and Gen Z's focus on mental health and wellness gives me hope that that idea can be put to rest or at least start to. And, you know, I personally do my best work when I'm rested, which is not as often these days since I have a baby, but (laughs) get back to that point. (laughs) And, you know, frankly, when I'm feeling fulfilled in other areas of my life. So it's not, you know, the morning after I slept under my desk in the studio that I'm spitting out the best ideas. So I hope that that is the legacy of of our generation and the Gen Zers. I truly enjoyed this conversation with Callie. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. Both personally and professionally, I would say just to leave things better than I found them. That's, you know, any project that I do, we do a lot of adaptive reuse. It's all about leaving something better than than you found, leaving it for a community, for people to use. And I try to apply that my personal life as well. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.